Hello and welcome to HipCast, the podcast here to improve hip fracture care. Dr. Sharon Carey is Manager of Nutrition and Dietetics at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. Uh, Sharon's been working as a gastrointestinal specialist dietitian for around 15 years, having completed her PhD while working in 2014. Sharon juggles her manager role with other fun activities, including Secretary of the Australasian Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, or OSPEN. She's also the co-chair of the New South Wales Agency for Clinical Innovation Home Enteral Nutrition Network. Uh, Just to keep herself busy, she's a clinical senior lecturer at the University of Sydney and is also a current NHMRC Translating Research into Practice Fellow. However, of particular relevance for today's session, Dr. Carey's research includes a focus to systematically identify, implement, and evaluate interventions that aim to reduce preoperative fasting times for acutely ill hospital patients. Welcome and thank you, Sharon. Thanks, Jack, for that introduction. And thank you to the organisers for inviting me to speak today on one of my favourite topics uh, with hip fractures. I guess the first thing to say is the majority of my research is in the acute surgical setting, not specifically in hip fractures. Having said that, I think a lot of it is very uh, relatable and a lot of the data that I've collected um, includes our orthopaedic areas as well. Uh, So to start with, I was just going to present a story. It's probably something that you may be able to relate to for a lot of your patients. Uh, This is Bill's story. He's 74 years old. He was brought in by ambulance to the hospital um, and he had had a fall and um, a query fractured uh, neck of femur. He was living at home independently and he has limited English um, and no one actually saw the fall. On day one when he arrived at the hospital, he was fasted, uh, started fasting straight away um, because they wanted a CT of the hip, the spine and the brain Um, and he was placed on an emergency list uh, in radiology for that and he waited eight hours uh, to get that done. Um, He was then allowed some food, having said that it was quite late and he got a sandwich in the evening uh, because he'd missed the evening meal. On day two, he was quite drowsy when he was on the ward. Um, So uh, the team wanted to fast him for a speech pathology review. Um, They were uh, concerned about his drowsiness and um, particularly with uh, the query of the fall as well. He waited 24 hours for the speech therapist to come and actually cleared him and said it was probably likely dehydration. On day three, he was fasted for an angiogram and he waited eight hours. Um, That was to ensure that he was fit for surgery. And on day four, he was fasted. And these are the notes uh, from our orthopaedic surgeon who said fast on Sunday for um, theatre on Monday. Uh, The theatre was cancelled on Monday due to an emergency case. um, And he was refasted on Tuesday for theatre on Wednesday. And so you can see uh, that this is not untypical. I haven't pulled this Uh, as a one in a million case, um, it is actually a very frequent um, series of um, fasting that happens within our surgical patients. Uh, We've done numerous audits of our own hospital uh, to see how long patients do actually fast. 
Um, we can see that um, for our endoscopy procedures, patients are fasting for about 14 hours. Um, some of our um, other um, procedures like our abdominal and liver CT scans, which actually don't require fasting, patients are still fasting for 11 hours. And then we've got uh, some of our major bowel surgeries where people are fasting uh, for multiple days. Um, and even our minor surgery and laparoscopic procedures, patients are, are fasting uh, for considerable, considerable amounts of time as well. We've redone these audits um, multiple times and the results are very similar every time. The main reason for patients fasting is for tests and procedures, um, a, a lot related to radi radiology, which is obviously a very busy uh, department but also pre-surgery, um, and obviously that includes our orthopaedic patients as well. So my first Slido question uh, for you is, what is the minimum required uh, recommendation for fasting of patients with a hip fracture before surgery? Potential answers are uh, greater than six hours, um, fasting from midnight, or for two hours or something completely different. The majority of people are saying, 47% of people are saying it's six hours, 30% uh, are saying two hours, and 21% are saying from midnight, and 2% are saying other. Um, we've actually done a review of all the evidence and the guidelines um, that are available. Um, the interesting fact, uh, first of all, um, level A evidence to say that fasting from midnight is unnecessary in most patients um, and uh, level A, which is uh, obviously strong evidence to say that patients can have clear fluids um, and unlimited amounts of water for up to two hours before an anaesthetic procedure. Uh, so the, the correct answer was two hours, um, assuming that we can allow our patients to have the clear fluids and water up to two hours beforehand. And I'll talk about the implications of that as well. Uh, so the first thing I want to say is that obviously fasting is important. And often when I start uh, rabbiting on about fasting, our surgeons start to get very defensive um, and the, what I really want to say is that we understand that fasting is essential to prevent aspiration uh, due to the re re reduced gag reflex with sedation. Um, and we, I am in no way saying that we shouldn't be fasting our patients um, at all. We know that if patients aren't fasted long enough that this can cause aspiration and potential death and obviously something that we really want to prevent. But when patients are fasted for too long, this can also cause complications of dehydration, cognitive decline, uh, greater risks associated with sedation, increased risk of complications, malnutrition, including hospital-acquired malnutrition, which I'll touch on quickly, and distress for the patient as well. Uh, so getting the balance about how long someone can fast to be safe for anesthesia versus causing um, detrimental effects of excessive fasting is um, obviously an, an area that I've been looking at and is actually a lot more complex than what we think. Just to touch on hospital-acquired malnutrition, Many states in Australia have a risk assessment model uh, for hospital-acquired complications based on IPA, um, and hospital-acquired malnutrition incurs penalties 
Uh, we have done some work on how much this actually costs around seven thousand dollars per patient is the penalty if, if someone's um, diagnosed with hospital acquired malnutrition obviously it uh, changes depending on the complexity of the patient uh, but when we look at the reasons for hospital acquired malnutrition about 25 percent of the cases are contributable to excessive fasting of our patients so it's a real uh, incentive for us to try and uh, reduce the amount of fasting that patients have and our next slide question is uh, what do you think are the main reasons orthopaedic patients fast for too long in the hospital? So the majority of people, 59% at the moment, we've got 34 responses are saying all of the above. Uh, 35, 37, 35% are saying lack of theatre time causing delay, and I'm sure that's probably all our surgeons who are listening. Um, and then very small amounts are saying uh, lack of knowledge um, and no one's saying lack of access to preoperative drinks. It's interesting. Uh, so the reasons for fasting in hospital um, are actually really uh, quite complex. Uh, so we have done some research around uh, trying to uh, pinpoint what the actual barriers are. And so we have done interviews across our surgical uh, teams uh, to find out what pe people think. And I'm just going to present this because I think this is actually a really interesting um, research. When we interviewed our surgeons, uh, the surgeon said that fasting patients has absolutely nothing to do with me. I don't care about fasting as long as my patient doesn't aspirate and die. Um, and they're saying that 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 fasting of patients and the responsibility sits within the realm of the anaesthetist. Our junior doctors say um, that uh, they know what the evidence is, uh, but when in doubt, they will fast a patient and they will fast them for long periods of, of time because they're concerned that they'll get in trouble from the boss or even worse, they may get in trouble from the head of radiology um, or some, some other department as well. And they're actually quite fearful um, and would never challenge their consultant. Our nursing staff said that uh, it's actually really hard to know when someone should be and shouldn't be fasting because no one communicates that with them. Um, they've also said that uh, they would never question the doctor, uh, even a junior doctor if, or their surgeon, uh, if they've asked them to fast, they wouldn't question that as well uh, because of that hierarchical model. Um, and so for them, it's just easier to put the patient nil by mouth from midnight. Our anaesthetist says um, we, she didn't know that there was a policy, um, as did everyone else, um, and that it's actually really hard to manage a dehydrated patient uh, in theatre. And therefore, the surgeon, uh, because it's their responsibility, should really manage this better. And our poor patient says, I'm so dehydrated, I think I'm going to die. Um, can someone just let me have some ice? And we have done some qualitative uh, research with patients, interviewing patients, and many of them say it's extremely demoralising to have to beg uh, just to have some ice to suck on. Um, so that's uh, indi indicative that uh, patients get very distressed around fasting um, and um, see it as a, uh, something that needs to be addressed within the hospital system. And then over in the corner, we have the dietitian, your lovely dietitian, who 
you are working with in your hospital, um, who may sometimes nag you a little bit, um, but is probably too conscientious and nice to say what they really want to say is that it doesn't matter how good your surgery is. If you make your patient malnourished, they are more likely to develop complications. Uh, so you can see from this that there's um, a large range of issues going on. When we actually tried to map this out, uh, what we found was uh, that there are systems issues, um, that our theatre lists don't talk to our EMR, don't talk to our diet ordering system, and it's uh, impossible to predict the six and the two hour fast, um, particularly for our emergency theatre patients, um, and access to food after hours as well. Cultural issues um, really came through quite loud and clear, which we were quite surprised about, hadn't really thought about uh, individual surgeon, but also individual anaesthetist preferences on uh, how long people should fast um, and when we should fast them. Uh, junior doctors not wanting to challenge senior doctors and nurses not wanting to challenge a doctor and the fear of the consequences. And then there was some knowledge I think the majority of people uh, know uh, roughly the six hours, maybe not so much the two hours, um, but they're very unaware of what's happening within their own hospital system, uh, whether there are policies um, and uh, I guess on top of all of this, what can they actually do about it? And every person that we interviewed acknowledged that it's a major problem, acknowledged it's unfair on patients, but they just didn't understand or see any uh, way to actually improve it because it's such a complex issue. And for that reason, uh, it's easier just to fast someone from midnight. Uh, so that's our barriers. What we've actually been doing is um, well, actually, sorry, before I move on, my last Slido question, uh, which is um, what do you see as the solution? Given that um, there are so many um, issues in play, um, do you think the solution is better in-servicing of our patient, of, of our staff, sorry, uh, policy development, after hours, food access, changes to theatre lists? And everyone's saying, the 94% are saying all of the above. Yes, that is correct. Uh, what I was going to talk about was that uh, we have used a, an implementation framework, which is the behaviour change wheel. Basically, it's saying if you can pinpoint where the barriers are, whether it's about a um, physical capability, not being able to um, book people into um, different theatres or having uh, theatre access issues, if it's psychological, uh, if it's around opportunities uh, or motivation, then you can actually um, tailor your intervention to um, address that specific issue, uh, which I thought fantastic. I'll be able to narrow this down and come up with an intervention uh, that uh, specifically addresses the issues around fasting. Uh, unfortunately for me, when I mapped out uh, all our barriers against uh, the behaviour change wheel, what we actually found was that there are pockets of barriers against every 
different aspect of how to um, get behaviour change happening uh, in this particular area. So there's lack of knowledge, there's lack of guidelines, there's lack of accountability, uh, the medical hierarchy. Um, this is not my role. That came out very clear. No one wants to take responsibility for this. The doctor said it was the nurse's role. The nurses said it's the doctor's. Uh, some people said it's the dietitian and so on. Um, unpredictability of theatre lists is just a, a massive issue. Um, lack of food outside of hours. Um, when you fast in all day and all we can offer you is a, an old cheese sandwich, um, then there are there are issues. Fasting from midnight, it's just an automatic response and obviously the fears, fear of consequences. I've put down here, uh, based on the behaviour change framework, uh, what some of the potential solutions might be uh, within this area as well. Uh, things And these are some of the things that we've been thinking about, um, definitely getting executive support, um, role delineation, making it really clear around uh, whose role it is um, to ensure the patient's not fasting for excessive periods of time, how to review theatre booking lists, visualisation of theatre lists. Often the staff on the ward don't even realise that a patient isn't even on the list um, at all and, and audit and feedback um, particularly. Uh, there's particularly positive um, evidence if we want to change surgeon behaviour to look at audit and feedback. Um, so what works? Um, just looking at the evidence so far, um, if we actually look at uh, what's been done in the literature, um, there's not a huge amount of um, literature out there. For planned theatre lists, uh, most of it revolves around implementing policies and guidelines. There's some research around fasting clocks and I'll, I acknowledge that in orthopaedics this is um, there is some evidence around this and I've said mixed success because uh, the the literature shows that fasting clocks do re reduce fasting times um, where they've been implemented in orthopaedic surgery having said that they're still fasting for long periods of time um, it's not like they're coming down the the fasting times are coming down within the six or the two two hours they're still fasting for 12 hours uh, implementation of eras guidelines obviously is uh, has been, had quite a lot of success as well uh, in terms of emergency theater lists uh, we've done some uh, a systematic review looking at the evidence um, here it's largely paediatric focused um, changes to clear to allow clear fluids um, up to 6am or unlimited until the time you go to theatre or one hour prior to surgery. Uh, acknowledging that by the time you uh, the porter goes to collect the patient to come to theatre and then they actually make their way down and by the time they actually get into uh, the theatre lock area that it's probably been an hour anyway. Um, and changes to surgery, surgical planning tools, um, being able to predict morning, afternoon, evening um, lists and so on. But there's not a huge amount of uh, evidence um, that indicates any one thing is going to work to help us reduce fasting for these patients. 
we had planned as part of um, the uh, NH and MRC Troop Fellowship that Jack mentioned. Uh, the last aspect of that fellowship is to implement a multifaceted study aimed at um, theatre lists and particularly emergency lists. Um, we have worked on updating our uh, hospital guidelines. Uh, we've done a lot of work with our consumers and getting patient reported feedback and we've validated a patient reported uh, feedback form. Um, it's a two question uh, visual analog score on how thirsty and distressed around someone's thirst they feel. Uh, patient story to drive our in-services uh, flip charts, we've turned our guideline into a flip chart for wards to be able to see exactly how long you should fast for each test and procedure. Um, sounds easy, but that took a long time to get all our tests and procedures uh, on there. Uh, visibility of emergency lists and radiology lists. Um, delegation of roles and responsibilities. Uh, audit and feedback for... Uh, each of the wards in terms of how long their patients are fasting, each of the clinical teams, and then uh, down to individual surgeons as well. Um, and communications from our, our executive, including requirements for incident reporting. So this is our plan. We've uh, twice now been on the brink of starting. We've started collecting baseline data and then it's been put on hold um, due to COVID. Uh, but we're hoping that in the early new year uh, that we will start uh, be able to actually run our intervention and see whether we can actually get some um, some outcomes um, so it's, uh, to present. So uh, that is actually the end of my presentation. Um, I'm going to hand over to um, Jack to see um, if you would like to ask any questions. Um, first question is from Anand. Uh, great question. We initiated non-fasting protocols with the use of complex carbohydrate pre-op in Tasmania. Would you use readily available products such as Dex Drink or Preop? Yes. So uh, that's a great question. And um, yes, we do use Preop. And um, in the last uh, twelve months, uh, that has been that has been um, utilised in our orthopaedic area as well. Um, I think the um, the thing to note with the Preop, it's uh, I mean that's a commercial product. It doesn't have to be. Um, that drink specifically, even our clear fluids like our apple juice and so on, um, it can work uh, just as effectively as well. Um, but yes, definitely, uh, I think the ERAS protocol and particularly the pre-op drinks have changed, have helped a lot. Um, but we're still, it still comes down to when do you actually stop them from being able to drink that when we don't actually know when the two-hour fast is going to start. Great. Okay. And I see Hannah Seymour is just being clever enough to jump the queue with, can you share your list of fasting time resources via the ANZHFR website? It would save us time from doing the same things. We'll make sure that happens. What is the role of using mixed dextrosaline as fasting IV fluids in preventing malnutrition? If so, effect on glycemic control in patients with diabetes? Yes. Yeah. So um, you'll see in the guidelines that um, obviously diabetes does need to be managed 
differently. Um, the role of the glucose is to pre um, prevent the um, insulin surge that you get in the inflammatory response. Um, but um, yes, there are, we do have different um, protocols and we do have, so in New South Wales, we did develop uh, the clear fluid preoperative diet that can be ordered. Um, and we have a specific diabetic clear fluid preoperative diet as well. Fantastic, thank you. And I'll just answer the last one in closing, which is, uh, addressing malnutrition definitely helps with um, hospital accreditation it's well embedded in standard five and so i would um, make sure you take a good look at that and if everyone could give a virtual clap to sharon for helping out today that would be great and thank you sharon <laughs>